All right, good morning. So good to see you here on this August 20th Sunday morning. They say the heat is coming back this week. Winter's last, summer's last gasp. Maybe winter's last hope. Hey, um, didn't the praise team do a great job? Love that last song. Don't you love that new song? Just so much feeling, so much of what we want to say. And Marshall and Ashley weren't on the schedule to lead this week, or Rusty, but somebody had to go to the hospital this week. So you may follow them on Instagram, or you may follow them on Facebook or something, and you know that Taylor and Karen had their baby Thursday morning, about 6.40. They had a little Monroe Victoria, Monroe Victoria, I think they're going to call her Roe. And uh, she was healthy. Mama and baby are healthy. And best of my knowledge, they are home and, uh, and doing well and probably watching online. Shays, congratulations. I wish we had a picture up here. Well, next week, we'll get you a picture up here. But you can follow them on Instagram, and I'm sure there are lots of pictures out there. So happy uh, for them and this uh, journey of their life. Cassie is next. And Cassie has until uh, October, I think. Uh, so uh, our staff is doing what we're trying to do to grow the church. What are you doing? Some of you need to get busy. Amen? Get busy. All right. Well, we are, uh, we are still in kind of summer. Small groups have started here. They start at our Taste Valley and other campuses. I see Taste Valley and Marmette this week and then uh, Beckley's waiting till after Labor Day, but um, summer is kind of over, but it's still here. We'll feel it this week. So a lot of times in the summer, we do a standalone sermon or two or three. And so today's a standalone before we start a series next week on the Sermon on the Mount, be an expository sermon series that goes through a lot of November, I think, on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have your phone and you get on our, the QR code, use the QR code to get onto our sermon page, you'll find the outline for today's message. And also, you do that every week, but also the second page of that outline, you'll see where we're going as far as uh, sermons go. So you'll see the next series, the next four, five, or six weeks sermon titles, texts. Now those are subject to change. The titles are as we study and I get closer to uh, pulling the trigger on them. But you can kind of get a general idea for how we're going to break down the Sermon on the Mount, especially the first several weeks. So I encourage you to, uh, to use the technology we have to study, to get ahead and to be prepared when you come in here for what God's going to lay on your heart. And he might lay it on your heart before you even come in here. And what you hear from me might be affirmation or maybe we need to talk about it later. So I encourage you to use that information. And today we're going to talk about a topic before we get into that series next week that no one really wants to talk about. You know, the preacher gets that job and along with some other people, we, we get the job of talking about things nobody wants to talk about. And what we're going to talk about today is the other side of the gospel, the other side of the gospel. Now, the word gospel means what? Good news. 
It means good news. So if the gospel means good news, if it's good news, then there has to be bad news in order for it to be good. In order for you to know what's good, you have to know what's not good. In order for you to know what's right, you have to know what's wrong. And so we're going to talk about the other side of the gospel, just as necessary to know as the gospel. One of the things I like about this song is um, that, that word that says, I want to be saved. I want to be saved. And we often use those, uh, those words. We often say that. I want to be saved. I want to be saved from what? From what? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Some people will say, I want to be saved from addiction. I want to be saved from poverty. I want to be saved from loneliness. I want to be saved from anxiety, from depression. I want to be saved from fear. I heard a song on the radio this week. One of my favorite artists, uh, We the King, We the Kingdom. No, the father and the daughter. We the Kingdom. That is the father and the daughter. And, and they sing a song that says, uh, you save me from myself. You save me from myself. And while all of these are kind of true, they're not really what we're saved from. Let's, let's not be uh, disingenuous here. Being saved from myself is definitely important, but there's times when I live with myself. You might, you might think, how in the world can you live with yourself? But there are times I do. What we need to be saved from is one thing and one thing only. And when we're saved from this, we're also saved from all those other things, right? But the main thing is to be saved from the wrath of God in hell. We need to be saved from hell. Because whether we want to admit it or not, we're all headed for eternity. And we will spend the rest of eternity in one of two places. We are all headed to hell. But by the grace of God, we're saved from that and we get heaven. Amen? Because we're all sinners. We're all sinners and that's where sinners end up. They end up in hell. And every single person who ever takes a breath of life becomes a sinner. And sinners deserve hell. But by the grace of God, we're saved from that. Now that's good news, but I want to talk about the bad news. We're going to get there. Maybe today you're comfortable and you've got a nice life, like I do. Air conditioning. Thank God for air conditioning comfy bed, a nice home, cars to drive, money in the bank account, whatever you need, food to eat. And you're not really thinking about heaven or hell. You're not thinking about that date with destiny that you have. But make no mistake about it, you're headed there and I'm headed there. If the Lord tarries, we are all going to die. We're all going to die. What can we say about death? Well, it may come about suddenly. Did you know, according to what I read, and I read it on the internet, so it's got to be true, 80% of the time, 
The first sign of a heart attack is instant death. I didn't know he had heart problems. Neither did he. It can come suddenly. It, it is very intrusive. Death doesn't care what things you left undone. It, it doesn't care what retirement plans you had. It doesn't care about what you wanted to do tomorrow. Death doesn't care. Death says, I'm coming, I'm coming now. Whatever you got left undone is going to be left undone. Men, especially, I would advise you to write a letter to your wife or to your family. Make it where she knows where it is. It's your death letter. It's your goodbye letter. It's your I love you letter. And here's the information you need to know. Number one, I spent all the money. No, you need to leave information, pertinent information about what she needs to know. And ladies don't think, oh, well, he's going to die before. No, lots of times women die before the man. Write a letter. Here's how to make bread and butter pickles. I'm kidding. I shouldn't have said that. My wife's been canning all week and uh, I couldn't do that. Death is also final. It's final. C.S. Lewis, when his wife died, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And he said, I look up at the sky and is there anything more certain than that in all of those vast times and spaces, if I were allowed to search them, I would nowhere find her face, her voice, her touch. She died. She is dead is the worst word and so difficult to learn. Death is final. Life goes on for you and for them, but it's final. Death might also be surprising. I was surprised to learn just this past week we were in a staff meeting and Dennis told us that one of the guys who used to be in the recovery ministry, he had left the ministry and gone to Texas, but he died suddenly from a heart attack. James. He had helped with some of the work in the daycare. He had helped with the student ministry center in Taze Valley. And he dropped dead of a heart attack. The Holzman family. And the question people ask most loudly when they lose someone like this is what happens next? Job, you remember Job? He asked the question uh, when he said in chapter 14, man who is born of a woman is a few days is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And down in verse 14, he says, if a man dies, shall he live again? And we know the answer to that. The writer of Hebrews told us, it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes the judgment the Apostle Paul also answered Job's question, 1 Corinthians 6, 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Okay, once he raises up, what next? 
Again, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. What is due? What is due? You see, you and I have a, an appointment we're going to keep. We are going to keep the appointment where we stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ. Take a number. It'll be like the, the, the Delta helpline I witnessed a couple of weeks ago when I was stuck in Atlanta, Georgia, coming home from Mississippi. You talk about hell. You ever tried to sleep in an airport? How many of you ever slept in an airport? You're lying. You don't sleep in an airport. You might catnap in an airport. You can't sleep in an airport. Yeah, on the way to Haiti. Well, we were crazy, weren't we? And I walked out into the helpline, and as far as I could see, there were people standing there. I'm like, wow. This might be what it's like at the end of the age. We're just going to stand there. We won't have anything else to do. Stand there and wait our turn at the judgment seat of Christ. But let me ask you, would a loving God really send someone to hell? That's the question, isn't it? And we try to impose our 21st century sense of fairness and, and justice on God. God, this isn't fair. That's what our culture wants to know today. You know, I can't believe in a God who would really send someone to hell. Even some Christians are asking this question. There are Christians, if they believe in a literal hell, a lot of Christians, they don't even believe in a literal hell. It's just a state of mind. It's just a, you know, it's this life. The ones that do believe in hell, people think, well, I'm not going there, but my neighbor probably is. <clears throat> One young Christian lady came home from a date. She was really anticipating this date. There was a young man who had been going to her church. And uh, she came home very dejected. Her mom said, what, what, what's wrong? You didn't like him? She said, oh, yeah, I liked him. I liked him a lot. She said, well, what happened? Did the date not go well? She said, yeah, the date went well. Well, what's, what's going on? She said, well, we got to talking. We got to talking about our faith. And I don't think I can really date him or marry him because he says he's a Christian, but he doesn't believe in hell. Her mama said, oh, that's okay. You go ahead and date him. We'll teach him what hell's all about. <laughs> yeah. There are lots of questions that come up when we talk about hell. Is hell a literal place or just a state of existence? If hell is real, where is it? Is it in the center of the earth? Is it in outer space? Is it in Ohio? Is that where they learn to drive? I shouldn't have said that. I like Ohio drivers. You know, a lot of church fathers believed hell was somewhere under the earth. Philippians 2 talks about every knee bowing in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Is hell a place of literal fire and smoke? If so, how can flesh and blood exist in a place of an unquenchable fire? 
Is hell really a place of eternal torment? Is that fair for a temporary life to get eternal punishment? Is the devil the master and ruler of hell? You know, when you listen to a lot of songs, a lot of, doesn't matter what genre of song, a lot of mention hell, and it sounds like hell's a great, you know, kind of a, not a bad place. We got a party in hell. Mark Twain once said, I'll take heaven for the climate and hell for the company. Well, he's right about part of that. There's going to be a lot of people in hell. Will the devil be like the DJ, the master of ceremonies and one great big party? There are deeper questions like why would a loving God even create a place like hell? How could a loving God send people made in his own image to a place like hell? Will God get satisfaction from punishing the lost with his wrath for eternity? Will God really send people to hell who've never heard of Jesus for eternity? And I'm sure we could go on, but you get the point. And I can't presume to answer all the questions. I have a, I have a lot of answers. I'm not going to answer them all in this sermon, but I do have a lot of answers if you ever want to talk about this. But there are some, some questions we won't know the answers to until we get there. Not to hell. <laughs> When we, get to, when we get to God, we can ask him. And as you can imagine, there are many different views of hell. Some people, like atheists, for instance, believe there, there's no hell. When you die, you just become worm food and nothing, nothing. They can't believe in hell. They don't believe in God. Some people believe in annihilationism. In other words, they believe that Christians go to heaven but unbelievers are wiped out. They're annihilated. They're just kind of vaporized. That this life is hell enough. Some people believe that hell is a place where, called purgatory, where you can have your sins purged. So if you're a really bad person, like a, a dictator responsible for millions of people's deaths, you go to hell for a long time before your sins are purged. But if you're just a run-of-the-mill guy, you know, like somebody's neighbor, you're a good guy, you loan your lawnmower out occasionally, and you, you, know, you clean up in front of your house, and you're not a bad guy, you give somebody the shirt off your back, you just don't have time for God. You just don't really want to go to church. You just don't really see the need. Your life is good. Why should I go to church? That kind of guy... He might go to hell for a week, according to this view. And then there's universalism. Now, you might remember the name Rob Bell. Rob Bell was a preacher in Michigan who kind of became famous for, he was a, he was a good communicator, and he wrote a book called Love Wins. This is maybe a decade ago now or less. And in this book, he laid out his view of hell where, where he says God's will is so sovereign and his love so powerful that eventually it will melt the heart of the hardest sinner. So hell is rehabilitative. It's kind of like the uh, uh, purgatory view. It's kind of a new view of that. But th this, this is a view where you'll come around. You'll eventually come around. And you'll see things God's way and you'll acknowledge Jesus as Lord and you'll get into heaven. People will say, where have you been? You smell like smoke. Spent a little time in hell. Well, how long did it take you to rehabilitate? Oh, it took a month or two. A month would have taken me like five seconds. 
right? None of these views are correct or biblical, in my opinion. So if we believe those views are incorrect, what is our view of hell? And that's a good question. That's what I want to spend the rest of my time talking about. We believe that hell is a literal place that only God knows the location. We believe it's a place of punitive. When I say punitive, I mean punishing. That's what the word means. And it's a place of eternal punishment. Why do we believe this? You know, if you look at our statements on our website, our core doctrines, one of them at the bottom is that hell is a real place. Literal. Well, we believe this because we believe this is what Jesus believed. And that's where we have to start. If you take a doctrinal issue or some kind of theological position and you're standing with Jesus on this position, you know, as, as, as much as you can, there's some things today that we talk about that Jesus, you know, we don't know what he thought about it. We could infer or deduce from some things, but if there's something clear that we know that he has spoken about, then it would be good to stand with him, amen? Be good to stand with Jesus on, if he believes it, I believe it, and that's good enough for me. In John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, he said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus talked about two different verdicts. First of all, Jesus believed in a literal hell. A literal hell. It's a literal place. It's not a state of mind. It's not this life, although this life can be bad for some people. It can, it can, they could describe it, it feels like hell. But make no mistake about it, there's no place on earth that's gonna even compare to hell. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty three. Do not, he said, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Now, there are four locations mentioned there. Capernaum, heaven, Hades, or the Greek word for hell, and Sodom. Now, we, we know that Capernaum was a real place. Capernaum was a real place. Jesus spent a lot of time there in his ministry. Capernaum can be found today. It's just known by another name. It's on the north shore of the Galilee in northern uh, Israel. It's a real place. They have artifacts. They, they know exactly where this place was. It's a real place. Sodom was also a real place. If you remember, Sodom was a place mentioned in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham and a couple angels visited so that they could get Lot out of there because God said, I will bring punishment on Sodom. And so they eventually did. And you remember Lot's wife longed for what was there. She looked back and turned to a pillar of salt. What happened there? Well, you don't have to uh, think too hard. Ezekiel 16, 49 says, God punished the people of that city for their pride, their apathy, their disdain for the needy and for their homosexual behavior. The word Sodom is the word from which we get a homosexual act. Homosexual. 
right? I mean, there's a connection there. And God punished the people. Ezekiel said the people there did an abomination, quote unquote, before God. Sodom has, they think they've found Sodom. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a place in the, in the desert where they believe Sodom was. And there's a, there's a, believe it or not, a high sulfur content in the ground there because God rained down fire and sulfur. So it stands to reason if Capernaum was real and Sodom was a real place, the other two places are also real, heaven and hell. Jesus understood that hell was a real place. You probably heard this before, but did you know that Jesus spoke more about hell than any other single topic? I mean, you think about it. Jesus could have talked about peace. He could have talked about love. He could have talked about joy. He could have talked about life. There's any number of things that could have topped the list of most discussed topics by Jesus, but none of those things top the topic of hell. He talks about hell and mentions hell more than any other single item in the New Testament, in his, in his ministry. Why? Well, the only thing I can think of that makes sense is because he knew what it was like. And he wanted to keep people out of there. Matthew 23, 33, to the Pharisees, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? If hell was not a real place, why would he say something like that? Mark 9, 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, <clears throat> cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. What Jesus is saying there is, look, whatever it takes, you don't want to go there. Whatever it takes, cut your hand off, pluck your eye out, walk away. Drastic measures. Do whatever it takes to stay out of this place because I've seen it. And you don't want to go there. Luke 12. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's talking about God. He's talking about the Father. I believe hell is a real place because Jesus believed hell is a real place. Where is it? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's a mobile city and it's sitting out there somewhere and that, that satellite or that, uh, that camera, you know, whatever that is. What is it? Um, help me out here. It's peering in the Hubble. Yeah, thank you, the, John. The Hubble is going to see it one day and it'll be, whoa, whoa. Get out of here. Maybe they have seen it. They just don't know what they're looking at. Maybe it's in another dimension. You know, we humans see in so many dimensions, but God lives in other dimensions. Jesus believed it was real. I believe it's real. I hope you do. He also believed in a punitive hell. This word punitive is where we get the word punishment. In Matthew 13, Jesus shared what's called the parable of the net. There are several parables in this chapter, Matthew 13. <clears throat> Here's the parable of the net. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. 
When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if Jesus is only speaking metaphorically here, he's using pretty strong language, isn't he? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. You think if hell was only rehabilitative, he could have used softer language here. Fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think he used this strong language because he wanted to put some fear into the hearts of the people. By the way, this passage kind of goes against today's rapture theology. Rapture theology says that the good will be taken out and the bad will be left behind. But here, the bad are taken out and the good are left behind. Just food for thought. Now fear, what about fear? And you may think it's not a good idea to motivate with fear. I don't wanna motivate my kids with fear. I don't wanna be afraid of me. How many of you at some point in your life were afraid of your parents? Yeah, parenting, parenting is changing over the years. I'm not sure it's for the better, but let's be honest, there's gotta be a little bit of fear in your kids, right? I mean, can you imagine your little five-year-old saying, I don't care what you say. Would you say now, Johnny, I'm your dad and you have to love me. You have to do what I say. I don't know if that's gonna work. It may not work. If you're a young parent, there's gotta be a way to put fear into the heart of your kid. Fear of you. I, mean, I don't know if that's going to the room at night and going, they've gotta be, they've gotta have a healthy dose of fear. That's what we're losing today. We're losing this idea of fear. Now, again, I'm not saying abuse. I'm not saying go too far. But I'm saying there's got to be some healthy fear. Sometimes I obey the speed limit because I want to be a safe driver. And sometimes I obey because I see that car sitting over there and I'm afraid he's going to pull me over. Everybody else like that? I saw this policeman this week kind of do a, a, a U-turn behind me. And I immediately looked at my speed limit. I'm like, I'm not speeding, I'm not speeding. And, and I had this uh, inclination to turn right. This is right down here on 817. I wanted to turn right into the gravel pit there, you know, at Shamblin' Stone. But I said, what am I gonna do there? Fortunately, he had other business. Sometimes I pay my taxes because I'm patriotic and I love my country, but sometimes I pay my taxes because I'm afraid the IRS guy's gonna come to my house and take me to jail. Sometimes your child obeys you because he loves you and that's what you want as he gets older. That's, that's the kind of relationship we want with our children as they get older. But sometimes he obeys you because he fears the punishment. You know, last week at Taser Valley, I talked about uh, paddling in school. How many of you ever got paddled in school? Thank you, Tim, for being first and early. Yeah, a lot of us got paddled in school. You know, I didn't get paddled in elementary school. It was when I went to Princeton Junior High and I got busted every day for a week because I had so far to go. Uh, the campus, you know, our school had burnt down. 
little Oakvale, and we were going up there. And I had so far to go to get to uh, Bruce Hawthorne's class. And he, me and another guy, he busted us every day with a paddle. I don't think he knew who I was. He didn't know my dad. Or he wouldn't have touched me. And he didn't care. And so you can bet when we got out of our last class, we, we jogged over there. We huffed it over there. Because I was afraid of my reputation getting ruined. And I didn't like what it felt like either. The same is true in our relationship with God. We love him, but we also have a healthy fear of him. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Romans 3.18, Paul said, The problem with evildoers is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear God. If you raise a child without fear of the parent, I'm not talking about, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about an unhealthy fear. I'm talking about a healthy respect and fear. Don't twist that, okay? I'm talking about a healthy fear that you're the authority and I need to obey you. The problem is we're, we're raising people that don't understand the fear of God and will not respond. Think about the punishment in hell. What would it be like? I mean, if you're not afraid of it, let me, let's talk about it. First, it's gonna be physical. It'll be physical. I mentioned the strong language Jesus uses to, I think, indicate what he knows about it. In Luke 16, there's a very famous story of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember the Lazarus was the poor guy who was near the door, the gate of the rich man. The rich man didn't have time for him. He just passed him by, disregarded him. Disdain for the needy, kind of like the sodomites. And uh, uh, they both died. Poor man went to Abraham's bosom and the rich man went to Hades. To hell, there was a great chasm. And the rich guy was so, he was in such pain Bible says, I am in anguish in this flame. I just need a drink of water. Now you might ask, oh, how can you be in uh, an unquenchable fire and not be burnt up? Remember 1 Corinthians 15, we all will be given a new body and it will be fit for eternity. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you will get a resurrected body. You'll get a new body. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches this. And your body will be fireproof. And that might sound cool now, but it's not going to be painproof. Secondly, this pain will be psychological. It'll be psychological. The main New Testament Greek word used to describe hell is the word geinion. Geinion is the word for a place called Gehenna. Gehenna was a historical place outside of Jerusalem. We read about it in 2 Chronicles 28, 3, 2 Chronicles 33, 6, Jeremiah 7, 31, Jeremiah 19, 2 through 6. The valley of Hinnom became Gehenna. And this is where during some evil times, evil kings in Israel's history, they offered their children as sacrifices to the god Moloch. So they literally tossed their babies or their young children over the cliff to die a terrible death quick but terrible, as a, a way to appease this god, Moloch. 
like the nations did. It was a terrible time in the history of Israel. And so this place, which was a deep pit, some people believe that the abyss was kind of like this place. That's where we got this language and it became a garbage dump. Came a garbage dump in the first century days where people would just throw their garbage and, and they'd light it on fire and, and it would just it was continual burning and smoldering and fire. And so uh, Mark calls it an unquenchable fire. Revelation 14 says it's a place where the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Now, can you imagine what it will feel like to be thrown out or trashed for eternity. And, you know, we live in a culture today that people love affirmation. They love likes. They love positive feedback. Don't give me anything negative. Don't preach on that bad stuff. Just tell me how good I'm doing, how good I look and all that. Can you imagine being in a place where you don't get any likes? You are trashed for eternity because of your choices. Again, from the story of Lazarus, Luke 16, we know that hell is a place of conscious awareness that there's something better. I mean, you were this close. I mean, you went to church that time and you heard that sermon, but you just decided not today. Not today. I'm enjoying my life. I don't have time. It's not really that important. I'm not thinking about eternity. I'm thinking about supper. I'm thinking about this week. I'm thinking about my next vacation. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do. I'm not thinking about anything else. And then when you get to hell, you're like, why didn't I think of, why didn't I just say yes? Why didn't I do something about my soul? Why was my life and my kids' activities and, and all the stuff I thought was important to them, why was that more important than my soul? Can you imagine? That's why there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's like, ah! I was so close. I was so close. It'll be the most intense physical and psychological torment and loneliness and a crowd of people. Thirdly, it'll be spiritual. Paul wrote, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And listen to this phrase, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Away from the presence of the Lord. You know, you and I cannot imagine or we don't know what life is like without the presence of God. Atheists don't even realize how bad the world would be without God. You think it's bad now? With no God, evil goes completely unchecked and out of control. God put a check on evil. And it was first called Judaism and the Ten Commandments. And then it was called Christianity. Christianity exists partly to promote God in the world, in the community, and keep a check on evil. And also we know that government Government was designed to keep a check on evil. That's what Romans 13 teaches, that God instituted government to institute the laws. Now, I don't believe God 
puts a particular man in the White House, obviously. I don't think, I don't think God elects senators, but God has ordained government. He's given you free choice to put in there. But the role of government is to keep evil in check in, broad, in the broadest sense, to do good and to push down bad. That's government's role. Today it's been twisted in a lot of different ways. But let me tell you something. What's happening today is the government's going rogue. The government is not obeying God's reason for its existence. I'm not saying this administration. I'm saying government for decades has been going in the direction where government says, I want to make the decisions. We'll determine what's right and wrong. We will leave the Ten Commandments out of it. We will leave God's word out of it, and we'll do what we want to do. And today it's getting so bad that what, is, what used to be wrong is now right. And not only is it now right, if you don't agree that it's right, you're wrong. And that's the way tolerance has changed. And I want to tell you something, folks. If government goes rogue and the church goes to sleep, evil goes unchecked. And I think both are happening today. Just imagine being in hell, knowing that God really exists and that he sent his son to save us from eternal torment, yet we choose to live and die without him. Frank Turek once said, God will not force anyone to live with him in the afterlife who chose to live without him in this life. He will not force anyone to heaven against their will. Jesus believed in a literal hell, a punitive hell, and lastly, he believed in an eternal hell. Matthew 25, 46, we read this this morning, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. In Luke chapter 8, verse 31, you remember those demons who begged Jesus to send them into the pigs and not into the abyss? They said, send me to the pigs, not to the abyss, because they knew how bad the abyss is. Now, my, my view, my theology, back in Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God, angels married with the daughters of men, they crossed the line. God said, do not cross. They strange flesh is what the phrase is in the Bible. And they crossed the line and God said, those of you who fell with Satan, those of you who took part in this abominable thing will be chained in hell. Where does it say that? Second Peter chapter two, for God, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, there are still some that didn't participate in that, are still around. They're, they're over in the world. They're possessing men. They're ruling the places in the air. Well, what's judgment's coming? And what's after the judgment? We know, Revelation 20, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night. For how long? Forever and ever. This gives us some insight about why God made such a terrible place. He didn't make it for you and me. He didn't make it for human beings made in his image. He made it for the devil and his angels. That's what Matthew 25, 41 says. Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God didn't, God didn't create humanity and 
think, well, half of them I'm gonna send to hell. He didn't predestine people to hell, yet that's what some teach. No, he made hell for the devil and his angels. But those who reject him in this life, even those who don't have an opportunity to reject him, I don't, I'm not putting my sense of fairness on God. All I know is there's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. You see, God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And he has done everything he can to help you do that. He gave us Jesus to live and to show us how to live and how to, how to avoid hell. You wanna know how to avoid hell? In Matthew 25 that I've been alluding to here, there's that, that parable, that story, but you know when Jesus is telling a parable, it's, it's, sometimes we wonder, is this, is this, is he describing real life like Luke 16? I think he is in this Matthew 25, and he tells a story about this king who comes, and his subjects gather there, and he says to some of them, you know, I was, I was sick, and I was naked, I was afraid, I was hungry, I was in prison, and you came, you came. They said, when do we come? We didn't even know. He said, inasmuch as you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Come into the joy of your master. And then to the other group, he said, all that, I was sick and I was in prison, I was naked, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was in prison, and where were you? You never came. They said, well, we, we never saw you. I mean, we were bebopping around, we, didn't, we just never saw you. We just, we're too busy, we didn't see you. He said, yeah, but you saw others. And as much as you've done to them, you've done to, or as much as you have not done to them, you've not done to me. You go to eternal punishment. You want to know how to avoid hell? Say yes to Jesus. Say yes to Jesus. Say yes. Lord, I, I say yes, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Whatever. You know, some people struggle with baptism. Oh, no, you know, I'll say yes to Jesus, but I don't want to get all wet. Jesus said, be baptized. Is that too big? Remember Naaman? Naaman said, I'm not going to get all wet in the dirty Jordan River. His servant said, yeah, is that too big a thing to ask? It's just, he's just asking you to do this. You're demonstrating your faith. You believe what he's saying about baptism and then there's what happens next well you know I'm okay now I can just come and come to church every now and then. no in as much as you have done or haven't done you will be judged what did you do with Jesus what did you do about Jesus what did you do about him if you think you can avoid the topic you can in this life. But I think that might be the question at the judgment seat of Christ. What did you do about me? What'd you do about me? What are you gonna say then? The Bible says in Ezekiel 33, God takes no delight in the punishment of the wicked. What he really wants is that 
the wicked turn from their way and live and live. Someone said that hell is a place realized too late, but it's not too late for you. It's not too late for you. You can come this morning and talk about your next step. You can come here and pray. You can just pray and say, Lord, what's, what is my next step? You can get up and talk to me or Joel and we'll tell you, what, what, this is your next step. That's what God gave us to do. You come as we sing. Lord God, thank you so much for bringing us to this place. I thank you, God, for your word, the good news, and even the bad news that motivates us to accept the good news. Jesus, I want to be saved through him. In his name we pray. Amen.